Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. When the Trudeau government spent big time to pre-order vaccines, it said Canada would be well prepared. But now, Canadian inoculation rates are behind other nations. How did we get this far and what can we do going forward? We'll discuss that. Also, the first Indigenous president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association says he wants to help change the culture of medicine so all Canadians feel safe accessing care. Dr. Alika Lafontaine will join us to talk about that. And Ontario will extend the interval between doses of COVID-19 vaccines up to four months after a national panel recommended so, but not everybody's on side with that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Canada tends to lag behind some of the other major countries, of course, when it comes to the vaccine rollout plan, uh, which is, well, a little unusual for an awful lot of us, because if you want to go back uh, about three or four months, you may remember the Prime Minister saying this. Canada now has the most diverse portfolio of any country for vaccines. We're in the right place to have access to safe, effective vaccines as soon as possible. Well, uh, that's not the way it rolled out, obviously. Uh, We started off, if in fact we were first, uh, I think we're down to 135th or something like that. A lot of smaller countries and some of the major countries, of course, are ahead of us. So what happened? What went wrong? Well, the Globe and Mail's done some uh, investigative reporting on this, but a number of doctors have been speaking out about this right from the get-go. And uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Joel Lechgen, uh, Professor Emeritus with the School of Health Policy Management and the Faculty of Health at York University. He's also a former consultant to the federal government and the World Health Organization. Doctor, great to have you back in the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks, Bill. Wonderful to be back with you. Well- I guess the old adage comes to mind here, Doctor. If you're going to talk the talk, you better walk the walk. I mean, that was a, a pretty bold thing for the Prime Minister to say back in December about where we stood globally when it came to a procurement of, of the vaccine. Uh, but I guess procurement is one thing, or announcing it is one thing. Actually getting into the hands of people and into the arms of people is much different, isn't it? It certainly is. And I think what it, what it sounds like the Canadian government did was they went for quantity, so I think by the last calculation, we've bought 400 million doses, but then nobody um, didn't, or people didn't pay enough attention to actually getting it into the country. Um, all the vaccines that we're getting right now, and at least until the end of the year, are made somewhere else and have to be um, imported into Canada. Um, and we should have been taught a lesson, I think, from the problems getting PPE into the country back in last spring, that um, this could be a problem. That country, we, there could be delays in manufacturing. Com- countries could impose export restrictions. Um, but that didn't seem to factor into what the government decided to do. It it comes down to, I guess, from an economic standpoint, supply chain. In other words, I guess, you know, the government just assumed we've ordered these things. We said they said they'd be here at X date. And and of course, they will be. But but as you've told us in the past, doctor, this is brand new. This is not, you know, like if I order a car, I know it's going to get made, uh, you know, because they're making cars all the time. But this is this is a brand new enterprise. And and everyone else in the world wants this, too. I mean, were they naive to suggest that everything was going to go smoothly here? I think so. I mean, when whenever something new comes out, um, despite best efforts all around, there are always going to be glitches somewhere in the in the chain. Um, and if there if the the glitches can be in manufacturing, 
The glitches can be um, if they have to come from another country, so you could have problems with transportation. Something's going to happen. Um, and But as I said, the federal government just didn't seem to recognize that. And if you actually look at the contract that Canada signed with Novavax, um, there are no uh, penalties, um, at least for Novavax, if they um, don't meet the requirements of the contract in terms of delivery schedule. The only thing that, that can happen is the federal government can ask for its money back. Which is, a, that's cold comfort to people that are waiting for vaccines, though, isn't it? That is. And you've got you to think about it from the federal government's point of view. Um, so vaccines are, are delayed coming into the country. Are they going to say, well, we don't want them at all and give us their money back? Or are they going to accept the delay? And I think it's likely to be the latter. So really, um, the comp- I don't think that the companies are going to deliberately um, withhold vaccines. But again, if there are problems with with them getting the vaccines to Canada, then the companies should be um, should be having to repay having a financial penalty for that. Um, financial penalties sometimes drive you to make sure that nothing bad is going to happen. Uh, yeah, and I, I I know from my days in municipal government years ago. I mean, any contract we we issued, whether it was for waste collection or anything else, there was always that that clause, that provision in there that if you don't do the proper job, there's a penalty involved in this. And if, now the understanding we have, although I haven't had eyes on the contracts, is that other countries like well the UK and and the United States had those provisions in the contracts with the very same companies that we were negotiating with. Well, that's interesting that you bring that up because. Um, Aside from the contract with Novavax, we don't really know um, what's in the contracts with any of these other companies. So we don't know if our contracts are better or worse than what the U.S. or the U.K. have have signed. Um, And that goes to the whole issue around transparency with the um, vaccine task force. The vaccine task force, according to what I've read, has met um about 25 times there are only minutes or partial very partial minutes for about five or six of those um, meetings what happened with the rest of them what kind the government is saying that they um, didn't put a lot of money into canadian companies um, that were trying to make vaccines because of the advice that they got from the task force but we don't know what that advice was. Um, that kind of information is being withheld. So did did the task force make a um, the right decision in terms of what it recommended to the government? Did it overlook things? Um, we don't know. And that might be part of the reason why we're in this situation, because um, we really don't have a, a good, clear understanding of what was going on behind the scenes. We were kind of late to the game with that anyway, weren't we? I mean, we formed our task force, I think it was in August, long after the United States and the U.K. had done theirs. It's, it's almost as if they looked and said, hey, that's a good idea. We should do that, too. Um, again, you're right. According to the Minister um, of um, Supply and Services, we they were getting advice before the task force was set up. This was So this was back in probably April and May. 
um, but what kind of advice were they getting before that? Um, and again, that's not something that the minister um, is disclosing. All we're getting is, we took the best advice we got. Well, what was that advice? Was it the best? Um, and I'd certainly like the minister to um, to tell me. Well, and yes, to that point, Doctor, I can understand everybody looking at that with a skeptical eye. I mean, we've just found out at the inquiry going into long-term care here in Ontario, I'm sure you've seen that in the news the last couple of days, two of the cabinet ministers in the Doug Ford government said that we said to do this, and he did the opposite. So, you know, and is that the pattern here? Do they simply, you know, do they listen to the advice? Do they heed it? Or and You're right. I'm, the tr- lack of transparency here, I find, is is very troubling. Let me, let me ask you something else, though. It, to go back to the formation of the task force and a number of other things here, as you mentioned, procurement is one thing, buying the stuff and then procuring it is the other. The other is, is, is of course, the, the rollout, the dissemination of, of, the, of the vaccines. Uh, we, we don't seem to really have much of a strategy here. I mean, it has not gone as well as it has in other countries. Uh, and, and I understand that, okay, yeah, they just developed the vaccine a lot faster than we, we thought they were going to. But shouldn't there have been some discussion in some office in the government about that, that you, we knew that the, they were working on a vaccine, you knew that it was going to be happening, whether it was going to be in six months or six years, yet they didn't seem to have a strategy in place for that, that element of it, which is the most important element. Uh, <clears throat> well, part of that goes to the fact that we're a federal country as opposed to the U.K. or Israel. Um, and so each province and territory is developing their own strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, why did Ontario take so long to, um, to develop a strategy? Um, I'd, again, um, would be nice to ask um, the Minister of Health or the premier, what was going on? I mean, yes, we didn't quite know when the vaccines were going to get here. They might, you know, we could still have been waiting for the first one to be approved, according to what we were hearing a year ago. Um, but we knew that vaccines were coming. So starting to plan um, back last April, May, June, something like that would have been um, a good idea so that when the vaccines actually came here, um, we would have been ready to go right off the right off the bat. Um, I don't think Rick Hillier was appointed until what was it, November or December, um, to his position. Why wasn't somebody appointed um, months before that? Um, and you know, Rick Hillier was in the army, and the army has to deal with um, with planning for things, but the the army doesn't deal with vaccine hesitancy. Um, so was Rick Hillier the best person um, to implement all the various parts of the vaccine rollout? Or should there have been other people de- um, in position to, um, to plan communication strategies um, to make sure that people were confident in getting the vaccine? Hello? 
Hello. There's some uh, so many questions oh. that we need to ask here, Doctor. And and I know that hindsight is always twenty twenty. It's you know looking in the rearview mirror here, and they could have, would have, should have. Uh, but th- it just seems as if there were some missteps here. That's the thing I think that's causing an awful lot of grief here. And, and you're right. I mean, there's always going to be an argument, and still continues to be an argument uh, between the federal government and provincial governments about jurisdiction, especially when it comes to health care. Uh, we also know, by the way, that uh, the federal government does have the power uh, to invoke emergency measures if they so desired. And and I kind of think maybe a pandemic might have been an example of that but they didn't decide to go down that road but it just it, it looks at it exactly why didn't they do this why didn't they do that and it's not as if there wasn't uh examples in other parts of the world to say hey they're doing it pretty efficiently maybe we should learn from that um yes your hindsight is always um good to have um and you know i'm canada made mistakes and some of those or maybe a lot of them were were, prob- were probably honest mistakes. But the, the issue, again, um, and I don't want to emphasize this too much, goes back to transparency. Um, mm-hmm. Let's understand why we made these mistakes. Let's um, look at what kind of advice we were getting. Let's look at the dis- how the decision-making took place. And, yes, um, that will help that will help us learn in the future. So where did we go wrong and how can we correct that? But again, if nobody's talking, um, that kind of ability to understand um, how to do better in the future isn't going to be there. Um, Or at least people aren't going to, the population, the citizens of the country aren't going to see that it's there. Let me ask you, uh, uh, I know we're just about out of time here, but this is, I think, a very important thing. And, and, you know, what are we learning from this going forward? And one of them, of course, is is production of these sorts of vaccines within Canada. Uh, and I, you know, we've always said, well, we don't produce that here. We do produce vaccines in this country. Uh, Toronto has a plant, et cetera, but, you know, for, it, but it's for things like diphtheria, polio, and things like that, which are supplied around the world. And it's 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 great work that they're doing. That's, But... You know, should should we look going forward now to say, look, at, we've got to get in this game here, too? Uh, you know, when you look at the countries that did this, I mean, the, the United States, of course, have that production. There has a Pfizer plant in Michigan. Uh, Germany has it. UK has it. Uh, and they seem to get a leg up on everybody like that. Is it time that we got back into that game? Um, <clears throat> I think so. And, in fact, the, um, the other day I found out that the federal government is starting a consultation on biomanufacturing in Canada. So let's hope that that consultation is actually going to go somewhere and not just produce a report that's going to sit on the shelves until the next um, pandemic when we um, have to import again and have delays. Well, it takes a little political vision and political courage, too, because it's we don't know when the next pandemic is going to be along, but we've got to be prepared for it as opposed to being reactive. This would be a proactive move, and I think it's, it's something that we – have to have a discussion about it. I know it's going to cost a lot of money, uh, which is probably one of the reasons why an awful lot of the, the vaccine productions and the work that we're doing in biomedicals over the 20 or 30 years before this uh, left the country because the government just didn't make that commitment to it, financially especially. Uh, so there's going to have to be a change of attitude in Ottawa. Yes, there's going to be not just a short-term change in attitude. Right now, um, I'm sure that the government is thinking about um, how domestic production of vaccines but are they going to be thinking about it in five years 
or 10 years if nothing has happened. And we saw how the early warning system that the Public Health Agency of Canada got dismantled because um, there didn't seem like there was going to be a, va- a pandemic. So why have people work on that? And all of a sudden, boom, there it is. Um, so, yes, short planning now and continuing to keep that as a focus as we go on, because as you said, um, there are going to be more pandemics in the future. Um, when we don't know, but we've got to be prepared for them. Absolutely. Doctor, it's always great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. All right. Stay safe. You too. Dr. Joel Lechgen, of course, uh, uh, Professor Emeritus and uh, former health policy manager at uh, York University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, first indigenous president-elect of the Canadian Medical Association uh, says he wants to help change the culture of medicine so all Canadians can feel safe accessing health care. A fascinating gentleman, his name is Dr. Alika Lafontaine, and he is with us right now on the Bill Kelly Show. Doctor, first of all, uh, thank you for the time and congratulations on, on the appointment, oh, well, the election. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me. Good to have you with us here today. I've, uh, in the past, have known uh, a, a number of doctors here locally uh, that uh, were involved with the, the Hamilton Academy of Medicine, uh, the, the kind of the, the junior level of, of what you're doing here now. But it's a, a huge commitment, obviously, on top of what you're already doing, of course, practicing medicine. What, uh, what drove you to, to, to seek this, doctor? You know, in the past year, we've seen the effects of, pan- of the pandemic on Canadians. And I think just like... Uh, Canadians have had to shoulder the burden of a lot of these changes. Physicians have been affected as well. Looking around, I can see that, you know, my colleagues have had to sacrifice relationships, their livelihoods, as well as, um, you know, their time in order to make sure that patients in the midst of this pandemic are able to receive the care that they need to get. And I I just wanted to really contribute and and help. That's, you know, I, 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 I hate the labels. I always had to stick to use labels. You know, the first black person this, the first indigenous this. But it is a, some, some significance, I think, especially. Uh, what does it mean to you to be the first indigenous doctor to lead the CMA? You know, I, I think that any time you get someone into a position where they look different or have different lived experience than people who came before them, it, it opens up the opportunity to kind of imagine a different future. Um, I think that we're seeing more and more people who otherwise wouldn't go into positions or look like people that we'd expect to go into those positions um, start to kind of populate leadership positions across Canada. I, I think that's that's important, but I also think that's really healthy for, you know, the Canadian social fabric and what we can imagine going into the future. I, I know that obviously as the president of the CMA, you're, you're looking at a, at a broad base here. I mean, it's 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 healthcare right across the country, et cetera. But I, I did want to ask you a couple of questions about the relationship between the Indigenous communities and, and the medical profession. Uh, it's certainly the focus of an awful lot of attention now when it comes to things like vaccine rollout and, and a number of other health issues that have gone on. Uh, give us maybe your perspective on this. I mean, you, you grew up in Saskatchewan, of course. I know you're practicing medicine in Alberta right now, but uh, that relationship that, that has seemed acrimonious at times. Yeah, I think... I think Canadians sometimes, when they look at Indigenous health care versus, you know, Canadian health care, they often imagine that things are so different that they're, they're too difficult to understand, when in reality the same challenges that exist when, you know, a patient goes to see a doctor and they don't feel like they're communicating well or they don't feel like they've established a, a higher, higher level of trust or they don't feel like they get proper access to care or options, 
all these are the exact same problems within Indigenous health. They're just magnified several-fold. And so when you work through issues within Indigenous health, you can also use some of the solutions that have worked for non-Indigenous patients. And I, I think that that's the really exciting part of, of the path that we're walking down right now. What about building trust? How is that more difficult because of, of, of some of the societal concerns that have gone on for generations? Every patient brings with them kind of a history, a lived experience. I think if you imagine that if every one of your experiences with the health system had kind of a, a negative edge to it, that when you interacted with a physician that you never met before, you'd probably have a, a negative connotation that went along with medical care. Indigenous people have brought with them this colonial history that has led to mistreatment, misdiagnosis, decreased access to care, as well as some some very direct negative uh, impacts like experimentation or the things that went on in, in you know Indian hospitals. So, I I think it's understandable for Indigenous patients to have like this level of mistrust with the system. That just means as physicians we have so much more of an obligation to communicate more openly, create that space for people to actually talk about the trauma that they went through. That way we can rebuild that trust. Um, on a one-to-one basis, when you have patients and physicians, you have a great opportunity to actually impact care at that point. And so although we talk about changing all of these things, including systemic racism, they're really just an aggregation of these individual experiences. And so I, I think one of the things that I'd like to do as president-elect over at the Canadian Medical Association is just reaffirm to physicians that we don't have to wait for the whole system to change. We can change ourselves right now. You mentioned, uh, obviously, your own living experiences, but your mother uh, was a major influence in, in steering you in this direction, too. Maybe you could tell our listeners about that. Yeah, so my, my ancestry uh, comes from uh, four Indigenous communities. So uh, I'm Anishinaabe, I'm Cree, I'm Pacific Islander, and I'm Métis. So... My, my mom comes from the Pacific Islands, the island of Tonga. She's a first-generation immigrant. Um, and when she received care through the healthcare system, she's had very negative experiences. And so she grew up uh, worried about what would happen if she got sick, like what would happen to her, what would happen to her family. And that was really important for her to have one of her kids go into the medical system so they could create um, that environment where she could trust again. And it's it's been a great experience over the past um, few years to kind of be that person that family can call and you know ask for advice and and feel like they can trust things again. And my my mom really is a is a, a primary reason why I went into medicine. Because I've heard that before from from other groups, especially you know people of color, that said that there seems to be uh, two sets of rules, two attitudes, uh, depending on the color of your skin in situations like that. And, uh, and and some doctor will tell me that well, they do it unwittingly; it just seems to be ingrained in, into the system. And others, well, of course, you know, there are good doctors and bad doctors, like there's good and bad in just about any other profession too. Uh, but how do you address something like that? Mm-hmm. Looking at what we've normalized within systems is probably where I'd start after years of working in this area. You know, there there's certain behaviors within systems that uh, just become acceptable, you know, and with persons of color, whether they're black, indigenous, or otherwise, uh, there's often a feeling that certain types of behaviors are okay. And I think one of the things that we can really unpack over the next few years is looking at which behaviors are reasonable and which are not. 
You know, not every negative experience that a black indigenous or person of color experiences within the healthcare system is necessarily racism, but every single experience of racism is a negative experience. And so how do you take those experiences apart and put them into the right categories? You know, everyone sits and waits in the emergency room, right? That That's a very mm-hmm. common experience for most Canadian patients, and it's negative for everyone who's experiencing it. But, you know, if you're sitting there with chest pain and shortness of breath and you're diaphoretic, so you're sweating, I mean, those are constellations that could fit into, you know, a disease process that could be life-threatening. It's not normal to sit there and wait in the emergency room in that context. And so it's really asking these questions about what we've normalized and whether or not it's acceptable. Um, often when we talk about racism, we, uh, we other it towards people who experience it. But the reality is, if any patient has a negative experience, that means every patient is at risk for a negative experience. And so making sure that these negative experiences get resolved and that we really empower patients as they walk through their journey through the healthcare system, it benefits everybody. For those that have experienced that or know people that have experienced some of the, the examples that you've talked about, Doctor, uh, how does that impact them? Is is there a reticence to even, uh, I, you know, try to access the healthcare system after that, saying, "Well, I I, I didn't like what happened. I, I'm better off not going." I think that definitely is something that goes through people's minds when they have um, medical issues. One of my favorite definitions of health is talking about how uh, health and wellness is really the state where you can manage your chronic disease without outside help. So you can turn to your family, you can you can turn to your community and kind of manage day to day. Eventually you reach that threshold where you feel like you have to go to the healthcare system because you can't manage at home anymore. And so when you have an environment where you mistrust or where you expect negative experiences, what can happen is you wait so much longer in order to actually go to the healthcare system to ask for help or intervention. And by that time it may be too late to actually intervene in a way that could maximally benefit you. Um, it makes your care more complex when you come in sicker and more acute, and it ends up costing the system more money. So it, it's not only an ethical obligation to create these environments where patients feel safe coming when they need assistance, it's also just good medicine. When you're trying to address that, and I'm talking about your membership now in this in particular situation, Doctor, uh, I, how do you, this is such a, a a, a large body of, of professionals and th- that are doing these sorts of things. Uh, do you go one by one or do you set standards? I mean, is there a check and balance system to make sure that, that people understand that, that words matter and, and actions matter and, and facial expressions sometimes matter in situations like that? It's, 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 a, it's a, an exercise that, that, that probably needs to be had. And it, I don't know if you could put it in the realm of public relations or whatever, but I mean, not everybody's going to need it, but some people are going to need it a lot more than others. Yeah, and I I think it's important to acknowledge that although we've inherited these colonial systems and racism is a part of medicine, its intensity is different from place to place. You know, it's a bigger problem in some areas than than others. And so part of what we need to do is make sure that we're able to monitor and assess where those intensities lie, making sure that we get individuals within leadership positions that are able to navigate these sorts of experiences. You know, one one of the most important skill sets for physicians to develop in addressing, you know, any of the isms, whether it's racism or sexism or ableism or classism or what have you, is being able to wade through conflict. You know, patients often come with these negative experiences and they they condition themselves to expect, you know, conflict. And so 
being able to wade through that hostility is extremely important. And being able to give space to patients to actually be upset um, and, you know, speak their mind when it comes to their frustrations is really important. And as physicians, being able to differentiate between patients yelling at us directly because of something that we did versus their frustration with the system helps us navigate those feelings. Uh, at the end of the day, the real cultural change ends up happening when people start to believe different things. And so things like having leadership with different lived experience, making sure that you have persons looking through these different situations who can see them for what they are versus like lived experience that kind of dismisses or, or minimizes them, as well as creating these safe spaces for people to actually talk about, you know, the real trauma that happens on both sides when you're kind of wading through, getting through a, a racialized experience is extremely important. Absolutely. Uh, obviously, job one, I would think, is, is dealing with the, the pandemic and COVID-19. Over the last uh, 12 to 14 months, I think we have all uh, seen firsthand about the incredible work that uh, people in the medical profession, doctors, nurses, and everyone involved in, in, uh, in health care uh, have had. But we've also seen the pressure that has been on them uh, and, and the, the impact that that has had on them as well. Uh, nothing is going to be the same, I think, when we come out of this pandemic, doctor. How, how has this changed or how has this uh, impacted the medical profession? I think one of the things that's become very clear in the midst of the pandemic is that this promise that austerity would eventually lead to sustainability was probably a false premise. You know, years ago, uh, when we started looking at making cuts within the healthcare system and trying to make things more efficient through increasing workload while decreasing resources, um, it made sense at the time and it definitely was a question worth exploring. But the pandemic has really affected Canadians in the way that it has, uh, including things like lockdowns, because the capacity with the system is insufficient to meet demand. You know, and so I think we have a couple choices within the healthcare system. We can either choose to reinvest and bring those resources back, or we can reframe what the health system actually provides and be able to better meet that lower threshold of, of what we think it is. And uh, the post-pandemic healthcare system has to answer these these questions, and it needs to make these choices. In partnership, obviously, with government, because that's that's the funding source. And I, I think the frustration of an awful lot of people I've talked to, uh, doctors at all levels, uh, is that you know a government's idea of austerity just means giving them less money, and it, it's not finding efficiencies. It's it's saying you're getting less now. Learn to to live with that. Uh, and we've seen, I think, the the, the, the the cutbacks that has resulted in that and, and the different kinds of services right now. It's got to be awfully frustrating. Uh, it's my hope, and I hope, you, I assume yours too, Doctor, that, that not only have the medical profession learned from this, not only have we the public, but we're hoping the government has understood that maybe they were taking the wrong attitude uh, towards health care moving forward. I, I think that's a really great statement, but I think even even deeper than that, and the thing that actually makes me most hopeful about a post-pandemic uh, healthcare system is that patients are actually more educated and more engaged than I've ever seen before. You know, they, they care about what's going on, the decisions that are being made by government. They're taking time to sit and, and critically think about these, these, different, these different paths that we could take. And I think the more that patients feel empowered and the more that patients get involved in the active decision-making of healthcare versus just you know, voting every few years for, you know, someone else to make these decisions for us. Uh, that's what's really going to lead to major change, and that's going to be the exciting part of, of what we're going to build post-pandemic.
Well, I think it's probably human nature that at some point we tend to take things for granted, and maybe uh, we've taken health care for granted. It's always going to be there. You know, if I, if I have that pain in my chest, I know that they're going to look after me. I know I'm going to get the best possible care. Uh, and it was almost taken away from us. You know, hospitals had to cancel surgeries. Uh, you know, a lot of us couldn't see family doctors anymore. And all of a sudden, I think we got a wake-up call that, wait a second, this is important to us, and this is something that we cherish. And, and I, I, I think you're right. I think it's given us a deeper appreciation for the system itself and for the people within it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the deeper that appreciation goes and the more that physicians open up the space for patients to actually have their voices amplified in the ways that uh, we have this discussion, the the better off we're going to be. Uh, so much to talk about here. Uh, just got about a minute or so left, and I, I, I'm always concerned about about the, the staffing itself and the people and your membership in situations like this. It's been a hell of a year uh, for everybody. We've talked about the, the mental stresses, and, and sadly there have been some tragic results because of that. Uh, how? What is the mindset? How are, how are your members handling through the, what has been probably the roughest part of their careers? I look around and I see myself and my colleagues. I mean, we're we're all struggling, and I, I think it's important to say that out loud. You know, the weight of the pandemic is felt by everyone, but when you're in the midst of all this transformational change and you know the the overtaxing of resources, it's it's really tough as a healthcare provider. Um, you know, if listeners could do one thing next time you see your family doc, it would be really meaningful just to say thank you. You know, you visit the hospital, just say thank you. You know, we need to change to improve your experience and make sure that you have the best health care that you can. But feeling appreciated is something that costs very little and is extremely appreciated. Doctor, I wish you the best of luck uh, in your endeavors uh, professionally and, of course, with the, the CMA as well. Uh, I'm excited to see the, the, the attitude that you're bringing and, and look forward to seeing some of the, the changes in the, in the policies that you're going to be working with governments and other healthcare professionals on this. Continued good luck, and thank you so much for the time today. It was a pleasure having you on the program. All right. Thanks for having me. Take care. Dr. Alika LaFontaine, who is the uh, president-elect now of the Canadian Medical Association, uh, will officially take office in a couple of months. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the vaccine rollout here in this country because it's been very, very controversial, of course. As we mentioned in the first hour, you know, the prime minister promising that, uh, you know, we're going to have more vaccines per capita than anyone else, and we don't. Uh, that didn't happen the way he wanted it to. Uh, and now there's some talk about extending the time between the first and second dose. Uh, good news that we got today, of course, the Johnson & Johnson has been approved, but we are now getting a clearer picture of how much sooner we could be getting uh, the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, they say if all goes well with the increased deliveries of doses and the new guidance to space these one and first, first and second doses, they say now that every Canadian could be getting a vaccine before September. Global's Mike Licatur has the details. For months, public health officials have said every Canadian who wants a vaccine will be able to get one by the end of September. Now, the Deputy Chief Public Health Officer of Canada is saying it could be sooner. The timelines would shift and uh, we would be able to cover, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the vast majority of the Canadian population uh, or the same population in a sort of in a, in a uh, sort of a advanced timeline or moving it up by, uh, by several weeks. Dr. Howard New says it's the result of a number of factors, including the new guidelines, which will increase the time between doses up to four months so that more people can get their first dose. Another reason they believe they can move up the timeline is the uptick in the number of doses being delivered 
over the next month. Yeah, okay, but I want to focus on this time between doses because this is very controversial because it seems to just something that developed uh, as part of the conversation about the fact that, well, we weren't getting the dosage that we wanted in a timely fashion. So all of a sudden came the revelation that, well, you know what, it doesn't have to be within three or four weeks. It can probably do within three or four months. Uh, and a number of experts have gone side with it, but not everybody. I wanted to introduce you to Dr. Bradley Wouters. Uh, Dr. Wouters is a senior scientist with Princess Margaret Cancer Center, also the executive uh, vice president of science and research. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Uh, your thoughts, first of all, maybe you will set the foundation for this, about this idea of, of waiting uh, an extended period of time now between the first and second doses. Yeah, well, it's clear why they want to do this. You know, I think the opportunity and the pressure really to vaccinate as many people as possible um, has pushed the thinking a little bit around how to do the administration. And the, the decision to delay to four months is based strictly on being able to offer more people a first dose of the vaccine. Uh, the concern I have and, and the concern that many other people have is that this decision, you know, is, is based on uh, the perceived risk of, of not giving enough people that early vaccine. Um, and without any real knowledge or data, hard evidence uh, around the effectiveness of a, of a two-dose regime given four months apart. It's based on an extrapolation. We know things are going well and that that first dose, you know, in, in Quebec and in the UK where they've, they've already created a delay between doses is protecting people out to two months. Um, but by picking four months, you know, which is unclear really where that number came from, uh, it really, you know, places us in a category that's um, all alone around the world. I mean, we're the only country that is, has, has said that we're going to do that. And it's going to make it hard for us to evaluate ourselves against others. Um, you know, and there is a, a, a potential risk around that that's unknown at the moment. Well, and those are the variants. I mean, I wanted to ask you about that as well. Uh, you know, the fact that those variants are increasing in number right across the country, uh, a, a good number of them in southern Ontario here right now, too. Are we leaving ourselves exposed if we go to four months between those first and second doses? Yeah, well, it's again, there's a trade-off of risks here. You know, the variants are already here. They're here in, in quite significant numbers. And the vaccines that we have are currently effective against most of those uh, those variants. And so <clears throat> the need to get rid of COVID as quick as we can um, is, is also going to help get rid of those variants. But, you know, the real concern, you know, or the real risk, I guess, uh, around this delayed response is that, you know, people with partial protection or, you know, those that don't respond very well to that first dose and, and develop a strong enough immunity uh, could be potential hosts for the creation of new variants of concern, and the, and the real variants that we're all worried about are variants that may emerge that would be resistant to the vaccines that we have. Are we moving, Doctor, towards a, a concept here where there may actually have to be different levels of, of this vaccination, second vaccination? Uh, you know, we've always always been told the people that have uh, you know pre-existing conditions uh, are more at risk in situations like that. If now that we're extending this, uh, is there a greater risk for them? Should they be vaccinated within that four to five week period as opposed to, to going what the recommendation seems to be now? Yeah, I mean, I think that would be a good compromise, and it's actually the same one that was made in Ontario originally. So, you know, we moved from 21 days to 35 days for the Pfizer and from 28 days to 35 days for the for the Moderna. Um, but that was not done in uh, long-term care residents and in the elderly. 
um, they stayed on label and they got their second dose at the at the prescribed time. And that was done with the idea that <clears throat> that population may be a bit more vulnerable and we want to get them their second dose, which increases the quality of the immune response by, by many orders of magnitude as, as, quick, as quick as we can. I know we're learning almost on a daily basis about not just the virus, but of course now about the vaccines and the efficacy of the vaccine. But maybe you could ask answer a question, Doctor, that I'm getting from an awful lot of people every time we bring this subject up. And you know, the Premier is going to talk about it again today, I guess, at 1 o'clock. Uh, these vaccines all went through a, a rigorous testing, of course, uh, to get to where we are now before they got the thumbs up from, from the different agencies, Health Canada, of course, and the CDC down in the States. And, and that trial indicated that this is the protocol that had to be followed, one dose and then three to four weeks later, four to five, whatever, the second dose. What changed? I mean, you know, th- this is what the people that developed the vaccine said we should do, and now we're saying now we really don't need to do that. Yeah. <clears throat> well, there's two pieces to that. So one is, you know, you're absolutely right. You know, our in medicine, we, we, like, we practice what we call evidence-based medicine, so mm-hmm. that we deliver therapies around... Um, protocols where there's clinical evidence that it works. And that evidence is established during clinical trials. And so, there, you know, the trials that were done with both of these were done in a certain way with a, with a spacing of the second doses that they chose. Um, and they were incredibly effective, you know, far more effective than I think anyone even hoped for at the, at the time being. So, um, you know, fantastic outcome from those trials. Uh, what's being done now is really an extrapolation. And the timing between those, you know, the companies made a decision of, of what to go with. They wanted to get it, get that protection in quickly. And that's, they, they chose the 21 days and 28 days. Um, you know, but from a vaccinology point of view, from an immunology point of view, what's being done is, is sort of to extrapolate and, and to say that, you know, based on experience with other vaccines or in other cases, um, you know, we expect it to be as effective if we give it two months later or three months later or four months later. And that may very well be correct, but we don't have the data yet. And, you know, I come from the research community and, and we, we preach around, you know, the, the importance of practicing evidence-based medicine. And I think if we want to move to different time frames, we should study that, demonstrate its effectiveness, and then apply it that way. Well, that's the frustration, and I guess the concern a lot of people are feeling, and I think I share the concern as well, is that, uh, you know, there's been a lack of transparency from the political side on this from, from day one, and, and, and that's a question and a problem in and of itself. But now we're getting this information from uh, from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization uh, and saying you can do this. I, I don't know these people. I mean, you know, we're all learning about new agencies and, and, and different people that are going to have uh, some sort of an input into this. But is, is this the proper agency to make this determination? I mean, do they have the authority, first of all, and do they have the knowledge to be able to make a decision like this? Yeah, well, you know, it's an independent body, and it's it's set up to provide recommendations based on you know having experts that weigh evidence on that panel, um, and and you know that's their role, and that's what that's certainly what they should be doing, and we should and the jurisdictions should follow that advice to the extent that they can. So, what I would like to see though is the basis for that decision, the process of how we got to the recommendation for four months. What what is that based on, and you know where that you know where that risk or the assessment of risk has been determined and that's something we haven't seen yet and i think that uh is something that we should see from now 
Well, and I understand that. That's your background, and that's exactly why people trust medicine, uh, because there's, there's a, a body of work that goes into making decisions. I mean, you know, if somebody had come around, you know, last summer and simply said, "Yeah, I have a pretty good idea that this this vaccine might work." Well, show me the evidence. Well, we haven't done it yet, but it, it, I think it's going to. They say go back to the lab. That's it, you know. But now yeah. we're just saying, well, we don't have evidence that this is going to work, but we think it might. Uh, that's that's pretty risky undertaking, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, there, so you, there, there's a risk associated with that. How big it is, you know, what it's based on, um, that's important to evaluate. That risk is being weighed against the risk of delaying the, the opportunity for other people to get their first dose. And so that's, you know, certainly uh, the, the conversation that must have gone on you know, at NASI is how do we weigh w- one risk against the benefit of getting it out earlier to others? And I think it's it's important for everyone to see how they assess that risk, how they came up with the four-month number, and so on. I should note that, you know, Pfizer, I don't think, is very happy about this. They, they, um, there was a discussion today um, around Quebec's decision to go from three months to four months, and uh, Pfizer is not very supportive of that. So we'll see where all this shakes out. Do you agree with that concept, though, Doctor, that it's better to have everybody with one shot than, than to follow the protocol and maybe have some people have to wait longer? You know, it's, it, that, I mean, that's a tough call, it, you know, and it depends really on the situation and the level of uh, COVID in the community. I think what we want for everyone is to have them protected. And um, if one dose is, uh, is not going to do that, if it takes two to, to really do that, then, you know, we, we need to get as many people their, their level of protection as quickly as we possibly can. And it may mean um, putting those vulnerable populations up first and getting them two doses and asking everyone else to wait a little bit longer. And, of course, there were individuals. I mean, we can always talk about, you know, people with pre-existing conditions, long-term care facilities and, and things of that nature. But, I mean, there are many other people in other demographic groups, too, that, that would qualify, I guess, under pre-existing conditions. And it's I'm just wondering how they're going to try to single those people out. I mean, you could have a 25-year-old with scleroderma. You could autoimmune diseases of any number of different sorts, which puts them at higher risk. Uh, but if we're doing this by demographic, uh, do they have to wait their turn? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, there's no perf- obviously perfect way to do this. There are huge, you know, very large numbers of groups that, that all have uh, varying levels of risk and, and need for the vaccine. And, uh, you know, you see the scramble going on to try and sort that out in every jurisdiction in Canada, and everyone's doing it a little bit differently. Um, you know, I think the situation's going to change quite significantly over the next couple of months when, we're, when millions of vaccines start pouring in. Um, and the distribution levels um, uh, significantly increase. So it's you know my, my uh, I, I fall back to where the evidence sits. I, I would like to see us use the vaccines under schedules we know are are effective, and and then to do the best job we possibly can at, at getting that order right on the prioritization. Well, and I think that was the comfort level most of us had developed over the last little while. We were told that this was the time frame, this is the way it was going to roll out, except well, the Johnson & Johnson, which just got okayed today by Health Canada, uh, which is only a one dose, uh, which is I, what everyone else tells us is a game changer right now. But are we not concerned, though, doctor, about supply chain? Even if we follow this protocol and everybody gets that first dose, uh, are we going to have problems in supply chain again when it comes to the second dose? I don't think so. I mean, we're seeing the ramp up in production. I mean, we have to remember a year ago, you know, this is a brand new disease. And I, and when people were talking about a vaccine, their best hope was a vaccine somewhere around, you know, the springtime or summer of this year. 
you know, and vaccines that we, we really didn't know were going to be effective or not. So the fact that we had them approved in December is, you know, is quite miraculous. And, and we've got two or three or now four approved vaccines, you know, in, in the first week, week in March. Um, we can't lose sight of the, of the fact of, of how impressive and incredible that is. And, you know, obviously, once you've got it, everyone wants it, and we want to get it out as, as fast as we can. Um, you know, the timeframes that we were talking about as aspirational in December are now considered completely inadequate. Um, and it's really just a pressure of, uh, you know, around the fact that this, you know, the science has been so successful and these vaccines have been created. So I think it's perfectly understandable and, and we should we should continue to push to, to you know, to get those supply chains um delivering and you saw you've seen what's happened in the u.s i mean the j&j is going to be made at at other sites now they're going to increase capacity there they want to have everybody done by may in the u.s so i think we're, we're going to continue to see the time frames pushed up um but that's not going to stop the you know the, the demands and, and issues around equity and fairness and timing and distribution and so on it's going to be bumpy and messy for sure it has been so far. You're absolutely right. And, uh, again, I wish there was some sort of a coordination that's going on here, but uh, this is the ongoing battle between federal governments and provincial governments about uh, jurisdiction. So I guess it is what it is. But hopefully it's going to work out for everybody. Doctor, it was great to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Greatly appreciate it. Nice speaking to you. Take care. Dr. Bradley Rodders, of course, from uh, Princess Margaret Cancer Center, Executive Vice President of Science and Research there. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.